0: This is it. This is what this has all been building toward, right? This is the move. This is where God shows who's really in charge. God shows that there is a reckoning coming. Chapter 7, right here. Let's go. Chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. On the second occasion... While they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, Tell me what you want, Queen Esther. What is your request? I will give it to you, even if it is half of my kingdom. And Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor with the king, if it pleases the king to grant my request, I ask that my life and the lives of my people will be spared. For my people and I have been sold to those who would kill, slaughter, and annihilate us. If we had merely been sold as slaves, I could remain quiet, for that would be too trivial a matter to warrant disturbing the king. Who would do such a thing, King Xerxes demanded? Who would be so presumptuous as to touch you? Esther replied, This wicked Haman is our adversary and our enemy. And Haman grew pale with fright before the king and queen. And then the king jumped to his feet in rage, and he went out into the palace garden. Haman, however, stayed behind to plead for his life with Queen Esther, for he knew that the king intended to kill him. In despair, this is the scene, right? In despair, he fell on the couch where Queen Esther was reclining, just as the king was returning from the palace garden. The king exclaimed, Will he even assault the queen right here in the palace before my very eyes? And as soon as the king spoke, his attendants covered Haman's face, signaling doom. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole. It stands 70 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. And so they impaled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai, And the king's anger subsided. What a masterpiece that story is. Everything looked awful. Everything looked horrible. But God. But God. I'm sure that most of you guys are used to recaps on Netflix shows, so just in case you haven't been here the last few weeks you forgot, um, we'll just do a quick previously on Anonymous, right? We'll, we'll, previously what happened to lead us to this point. God's people, the Jews, find themselves in exile because of the rebellion in Persia in a city called Susa. The king of the empire Xerxes gets mad at his queen and boots her from the palace. The king's advisors come up with a plan to choose a new queen, basically through a a twisted beauty pageant. That's where we meet our two Jewish characters. Mordecai works in the king's service. He's raising his cousin, a woman named Esther. She gets drafted into this contest, not by her own choice, and she wins. She wins, you know. Anyway. Sometimes, after Mordecai overhears a plot to assassinate the king, he passes it along to Esther, who shares it with her new husband. The king lives. Mordecai refuses to give honor to Haman, who has been elevated to second-in-command. And that makes Haman mad, so, so mad that he resolves not to just destroy Mordecai, but all of his people, which were the Jews. And he creates a plan to do exactly that, and the king then signs off on it, not realizing that Esther was a Jew. Mordecai goes to Esther, convinces her to make a risky move, approach the king, something that people just don't do, and ask him to put a stop to Haman's wicked plan. She's welcomed by the king, and instead of explaining it to him immediately, she asks if she can throw a banquet for him and for his right-hand man, the evil Haman. She holds a feast, and at that party, she calls on the king and Haman to come to another party. Second party, she goes, and that is where we find our chapter today. Before that night, the king, Xerxes, had trouble sleeping. He had a servant read to him from the book of honorable deeds done in his kingdom, he then hears about Mordecai, exposing the earlier plot against his life. And the king ends up making Haman honor Mordecai for what he had done. He ends up parading his enemy through the street, encouraging people to praise Mordecai. And that, of course, makes the evil enemy Haman angry, furious, madder. He goes home with his tail between his legs. And those same guys and his wife tell him, you know it may not be such a good idea to go up against these Jewish people. And then chapter 7 happened. So quickly, when I read the story before, I, I, and, I, and maybe this is you guys too, but did anybody, when you read the story before, maybe as a kid, maybe growing up, this poll thing was different right when i had read it before i had always read that haman was hanged right did anybody else did anybody else hear that okay well if you so those are like there's um like the king james says that he was hanged the new king james says he was hanged the esv the english standard version says he was hanged but if you look at the niv and you look at the New Living Translation, kind of some newer translations that kind of went back to the actual language, and and this anyway, they changed it to a pole to be impaled on, right? Okay, so so I was studying that this week. Like, what is what is the truth, or what what is happening? And the problem from the perspective of a modern western reader is that hanging conjures a very clear image of wooden gallows a crossbar ropes trapdoors in which the condemned would drop like like in an old western movie right whenever we see the word hanged that's what we think so in the western world when these people were translating this word, they read, they took the word hanged, and they just automatically thought, automatically thought, oh, this is a hanging. But if you actually go back into the language and look at what is happening, you will see that that is not the case. So what were the possibilities of this, this, this death going to be? Well, one, you could be suspended by a frame or a rope, which is the modern Western hanging. Another one is to be impaled on a pole, which is what the NLT and the NIV translate it to, or to be nailed to a pole, which kind of brings up another image, right? Being nailed to a pole? Anyway, in the work of the Greek historian Herodotus, impalement was the regularly presented punishment by the Persian people. So, giving the setting of Esther that it was in Persia, it seems likely that the manner of punishment for Haman was, in fact, impalement. In other words, the 50-cubit tree built by Haman was intended to display Mordecai's body impaled on it, which is a terrible, terrible thing. But that was going to show how awesome Haman was and how, if anybody crossed him, they should expect the same fate. Haman, as it turns out, whose death and the folly leading to it was put on display for the entire population. In this case, this, this, this uh, scholar I was reading says that he thinks that the New International Version and the New Living Translation are more accurate, more correct in the manner of death by which Haman died. Is that that really important? No, I thought it was interesting. So I threw it in there for you. Anyway. Anyway, this morning, we got three points. Just like a good sermon always does, right? Three points. And, and those three points all have to do with this. There is a reckoning coming, right? When I started talking about an old Western, I started thinking about the word reckoning, you know? There's a reckoning coming. And the first one, the first point is this. We, we... You and me, all of us. We all want judgment. You know, one of the reasons why we love the Book of Esther so much is because we all want judgment. And in the in at the end of the Book of, of Esther, Haman gets it. Haman gets that judgment he deserves. Esther 7, 9 through 10, then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, Haman has set up a sharpened pole that stands 70 feet tall in his own courtyard. He intended to use it to impale Mordecai, the man who saved the king from assassination. Then impale Haman on it, the king ordered. And so they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. We love that because he got what he deserved. When it seemed like there was not, it was not going to happen, he got what he deserved. We love it because he was wicked. He was a bad guy, and we want to see that. Do you know that Christmas is 10 weeks away? I know. I just gave some of you a heart attack. 10 weeks away. That's crazy. Are you ready? You got tinsel and trees and no? no? I know. Halloween's not here, right? As I've stated several times before, the greatest Christmas movie ever is, of course, Die Hard, right? And if you have seen this masterpiece, I want you to remember the shot that makes this movie a classic. It's this shot, right? It's this shot. It's Hans Gruber, the evil Hans Gruber. He is falling off the Nakatomi Plaza, right? That's that's, that's it. And it's not Christmas until I see Hans Gruber fall from Nakatomi Plaza, right? There's not Christmas yet, right? But there's a reason why we love that he falls off that building. Why? Because he deserved it. He's a bad guy. He killed people, he stole lots of money. I mean, that's what we love that. He's getting what he deserves. We love it when he gets his just desserts. Why? Why right now this whole country is glued to their TV sets to see when Brian Laundrie is captured, right? We're, we're all like, "What's gonna happen?" Like, where is he? You know, there's people like searching for him and stuff. I mean, it's just crazy. People, I saw there was last. There was an article like there, there's people that were took satellite photos of, like, his mom's house, and he's like, I think he's buried in the back. I mean, just kind of like, I mean, they're just, people are just crazy with this. They're just like, he needs to get what he deserves. And why is that? It's because we want justice. We long for it. We long for judgment as humans, as those made in God's image. We look at the sinful world, we witness people doing evil, and we want it all to stop. We want those people to pay. We do. And now we can say, no, no, I don't want people judged. I want us to forgive. I want us to forget. I want us to be a person of love. But think about it. How loving is that? If you had a sister that was brutally assaulted, or a kid is killed in a drive-by shooting, how loving is it to not hold them the people that are responsible, accountable. How, how, how loving is that? It's not loving. If you aren't angry, if you don't want justice, there's something wrong. Judgment isn't opposed to love. Judgment is actually an expression of love. It's why when you have kids, you don't let them run crazy and do whatever they want. You have to corral them. I know with my kids, it's really hard. But you have to corral them. You have to correct them. You have to tell, because you love, it's an expression of love. Think about all the horrendous, evil, treacherous things that we see or read every day. Kevin from Karis Church in Kansas City says, why do we get mad at this kind of evil? Why do we cry out for judgment? We all have an image of, We all have an image of our God, and we want our God to be like that. Yes, he's love. What great comfort, right? But what if God didn't hold people accountable? What if he didn't judge? How loving is that? If we were in a courtroom, and a man is being tried for murder, and the judge says, eh, whatever, I'm feeling extra loving today, and just lets the guy go, would anybody be happy with that? We would be outraged because that's not what good judges do. It's not just it's not that's not just at all. It's not really love. It's not love to the victims and their families. It's also not really loving to their perpetrator to not hold him accountable. It enables it emboldens. We want judgment. We want a God who judges. So people like Haman, people like Hans Gruber, maybe you've felt this the last couple of years, anger at those who have spread the virus, or those who have left us unprepared, or those who have spread misinformation. Maybe we've had anger at politicians, both sides. right? Maybe at the people who hoarded all the sanitizer, or all the toilet paper. And that anger is normal, and it. it, it It images our God, but our problem is that we're not good at handling our anger. We're not good at dispensing justice. The punishment doesn't usually fit the crime when it comes to us. But God's judgment is always in balance. It's always just. We're more like the king here, or more like Haman himself. We want to burn the whole house down, but all of us as image bearers, which means those that are created in the image of God, we desire judgment. We want a king who judges evil, who holds wicked people accountable. We all do. But can I remind us of something? Which is point number two. We all deserve judgment. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil that we have done in this earthly body. We all deserve judgment, every one of us. And the fact of the matter is, we have all sinned, we have all broke with God. We have all not kept up our end of the covenant. God is holy. I don't know if we know what that word means, but that word literally means set apart. It means perfection. And a holy God demands perfection from us. And guess what? I'll tell you really quickly, I'm not perfect. In the Old Testament times, because he didn't want to destroy the earth or his people, he created a way out, a way out and a way to get around this perfection requirement. Does anybody remember what it was? Yearly sacrifice. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. So he allowed a yearly substitution to take place. So every year, the Jewish people had to make atonement for their sins by the death of a perfect animal to atone for the sins they committed. God, in His his atonement for the sins, in His love and grace and mercy, He allowed that to happen to substitute their rightful death for another one. And we, created in the image of God, kind of get that which is why we cheer when justice happens to the wicked. However, realistically, we deserve it too. We deserve it too, which is where we lose a lot of people. It is in our own nature to love to point out other people's faults, other people's mistakes, other people's sins, all the while will we gloss over our own we ignore our own we blame our own on other people or on other circumstances the phrase that my kids use that drives me absolutely bonkers there's two of them one one it's not fair and two it's not my fault Those drive me crazy when they say them, especially in that crazy, whiny, whatever voice, right? But as I thought about that this week, I realized something. I say those phrases all the time. Maybe not in the same way, maybe not in those words, but I know this about myself, is I tend to be the hero in every story I tell. In every situation I'm in, I I, I never have any fault or any wrongdoing in anything. And if I do, I try to explain it away by saying, it wasn't my fault because of this, 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 and this. Or, Or, yes, I messed up, but it wasn't fair because this happened. you get it? Are any of you guilty of that? And all the while, you may be insulting the one who created you, rolling your eyes at the one who owns you, stomping out on the one who has provided every good gift you've ever had, slapping the face of the one who holds you on his lap, slapping the hand away from the steering wheel, if you will. even if you've had no idea. And yes, as hard as this is for us to understand, we're ignoring and dishonoring an infinitely glorious person, an infinitely good God, and maybe that merits an infinite long, infinitely painful judgment. Listen, church, all of us sinners, we all deserve judgment. Which... Thank God for the third point. Yet, Jesus. And this is where we start to get hope. Christ, although innocent, endured judgment for us. Here in Esther, we see the bad guy get the gallows while the good guy goes free. But here's the good news. And that's what the the word gospel means. The truly good guy, Jesus, the perfect one, he gets a 75-foot pole. He gets the cross. While the bad guy, which is you and me, we get to go free. Jesus takes the punishment we deserve. He dies in our place on the cross. God is still righteous. Justice is served. We go free. We get to live, and that's good news, friends. Hear the words of God from the Bible. First Peter 3.18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the Spirit. And for the third time this morning, let me read this verse. For this is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that whoever, whoever, whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. We all want judgment and we all deserve judgment. Yet, yet, Jesus. Here is the absolutely bonkers thing. His judgment brings hope. His judgment gives hope. Not only us, but to the whole world. Esther points that points ahead to a greater hero, a greater mediator, a greater intercessor, the God man, Christ Jesus. But Haman also points ahead to another great enemy, the serpent in the garden. And think about this: Satan had a foolproof plan, didn't he? The pole was made, Jesus was going to be pierced on it, and he did. He went up on that cross, and everyone around him thought it was over. But ironically, that was the death blow to to Satan, to sin, and death. And on that cross, the great enemy was defeated. He was mortally wounded, and now he's staggering around, still causing destruction, but he's already been destroyed. It's just a matter of time. That cross was actually God's plan, His providence all along. Through that work, He showed His commitment to His people. Now He's given us a calling to go out and shout the good news. That this is the greatest reversal that the world has ever seen and ever will see. The cross, the resurrection, and when He comes back, He makes everything that is sad untrue. And He hangs Satan on those gallows. What a hope we have in Jesus. He is the miracle worker. He is the promise keeper. He is the light in the darkness. He is the way maker. And he has made a way for you and for me. Will you let him make a way for you?